Masechet Baba Kama Daf Sadi Aleph. Yesterday we saw the law that one makes an evaluation of a weapon, a murder weapon. Um, the machloket was: Do the judges have to see it themselves, or can they rely on the witnesses? But either way, um, one has to make sure, in order to to make someone liable for murder, one has to make sure that the murder weapon was one that could kill a person. So that if I take a feather and just touch a person, and suddenly they fall over and die. I am not liable because I was no way for me to expect that touching someone with a little feather is going to make them die. I, I guess it's some because of their weakness that they they fell over and they couldn't withstand that. Um, but instead, we, if I have a rock, so we look at this rock. If it's a big rock that could that could smash someone's skull and kill them, and I hit someone over the head then I am liable. But if it's a small pebble that shouldn't kill someone, but this person happened to be especially weak, then I am not responsible. So we saw everyone agrees regarding murder that we have to make an evaluation of the weapon to see if it was worthy of killing a person. Now the question is, does that apply also to uh, injuries? When it comes to injuring someone, do we also have to evaluate and see this uh, rock or weapon or item, um, was it worthy, was it uh, big enough and hard enough to cause this amount of damage? And if yes, you have to pay. And if we see that, oh, it was just a little stick or just a little feather and it shouldn't have caused that much damage, so then one is not would not be liable to pay. Right? Do we say that or does it not matter? Do we say on the one hand that it's only for murder that we say regarding this type of weapon, is it sufficient to take a person's life or not? Um, we only ask that question in terms of murder, but when it comes to damages, um, it doesn't matter even if it's a small item. If you cause the damage, we look at the consequence. Uh, this, you, whatever you did, resulted in damage. It doesn't really matter uh, what the we- what the item was and what the weapon was. That's on the one hand. So you have to pay full damages no matter what. Or Or is there no difference between murder and nizakin? And just like for murder. If it wasn't worthy of killing, I don't, I'm not liable to capital punishment. So too, for damages, if this thing was, no one would expect that a small thing like this would cause a lot of damage, then I don't have to pay. And the, the laws of murder and injury are the same. That's the question. We're going to uh, try to answer it with a series of potential proofs. Earlier in the Masechet on Dafnun said that when it comes to a pit, um, if it's deep enough that it would kill, right, then you're liable. And how deep is that? Ten tevachim deep. If I if I dig a, uh, a pit ten tevachim deep and an animal falls into it and dies, then I am liable. So too in all other pits, all other uh, uh, holes in the ground, I'm only liable uh, for killing the uh, the ox um, if it is ten tevachim deep. 
But if it's less than 10 tefachim deep and an ox or a donkey falls into it and dies, I am not liable, right? It was only nine or five or one uh, tefach deep and uh, this ox fell into it and it happened to be a specially weak ox that would die in such a shallow pit. That's not my fault. Uh, you can't blame me and I am not liable. However, if uh, for damages, that is, uh, uh, some uh, uh, and, and a... Um, uh, a pit that's less than ten tefachim deep does have potential to damage, and therefore I am liable for damages. I'm just not liable for killing it. Okay, so let's analyze. My labi mata lemala kachashivachi kamar mitef avad asaramita leka nizakin ika alman zakin kol tehu shema'amina and omdin linzakin. So this mishnah is it not assuming that it's counting from below to above, meaning? From one tefach until ten, um, from a very shallow hole until ten until ten tefachim, that type of hole cannot does not have potential to kill in a normal in a normal scenario, um, but it does have potential to damage. So even if it's only one tefach deep. That could that could cause damage. So you see that regarding the zakin, regarding damages, even a small amount has potential to cause damage, and I would be liable. And therefore, we can conclude that we do not make an evaluation regarding damage to see the item that I used, a pit or a weapon. We do not evaluate, but we go by the consequences. If it caused damage, I am liable, and we do not look at uh, you know how much damage we think it would have. It would have caused, right? Because you see here in this Mishnah, it says 10 is murder, but anything less than 10, it can cause damage. Uh, we answer, no, this is not a proof. It could be it's assuming that you're starting above 10 and going down. Nezakin ita mita leka. If it's uh, uh, 10, then uh, from above 10 down to 10, a uh, pit can kill. But if it's a little less than 10, then it will not kill, but it will damage. But only a little less than 10 will damage. And so, therefore, I can say that there is, you have to make an evaluation when it comes to damages. And for each and every circumstance, we see, does, would this cause damage? Is this likely to cause damage? So yeah, a little less than 10 would, but the Mishnah is only assuming a little less than 10. The Mishnah didn't say anything about if it's only two tefachim or one tefach or half a tefach. No, that probably wouldn't cause damage, and therefore I would not be liable in such a case. Mishnah is not, is not um, assuming uh, that one would be liable for a small amount. It was just saying um, uh, from above down to 10, it can kill. A less than 10, a little less than 10, it will cause damage. A lot less than 10? No, maybe not. All right, so there's no proof from here. Second proof. Tashema. <laughs> teaches that if someone strikes his Ebed Kena'ani on the eye and blinded him or, or hits him on the ear and causes him to be deaf, um, so he goes free because these are wounds that will not get better and uh, he gains his emancipation. Kenegid <laughs> 
lechayrut. However, if he uh, strikes him not on his eye, but near his eye, and then all of a sudden he can't hear, or near is his ear, and then he can't hear, he does not go free. Why? My tama lav mishum debainan umdena. So ushmamina yesh umdena linzakin. Is it not because we make an evaluation? And in a normal circumstance, hitting someone near their ear or eye should not cause them a permanent injury. And so this is an unusual, he, his constitution is especially weak, that caused him to go blind because he was hit near the eye, but that's not what, not, that was not, not expected. And therefore, the owner did not do an act that would, uh, one would expect would cause him to be blind, and therefore the slave does not gain his freedom. So we see from here that uh, with regard to damages, we're talking about damages here, not killing the, the slave, we do make an evaluation and depends on the action. Is this action likely to cause such damage? Then he goes free, otherwise not. Now, is that a good proof? No, the reason here is uh, that he doesn't go free is because he, the slave, framed himself. Right, the, the owner didn't do anything to uh, d- damage him. Right, he he uh, he makes a, a noise nearby, near his ear, um, and causes him to, to go deaf. Well, you can't count that as a damage, as damages, as we see in a beraita, someone who frightens someone else and uh, is uh, and causes him injury. Um, but that's because he got frightened because he's such a scaredy cat. So, but not because I actually did anything. You can't call scaring someone. You hide behind the door and you know shout at him as he comes by and uh, you know he goes blind or something. Um, so that's just because he is so frightful. But um, such a person who causes that damage in that way uh, is not liable in human court. He is liable in the heavenly court. It's not nice to do that. So it is a problem, but you can't calculate a payment for that. And the Braita gives an example. If you shout in someone's ear and deafen him, uh, then he is not liable. The Braita does say that if you grab hold of someone and shout in his ear and, uh, shout in his ear and deafen him, then you are liable. That's because you're grabbing hold of him, so you're physically, you have physical contact with him, and that is a violent act. He can't get away. So yeah, it's not that shouting in the ear can't deafen someone. It can, and one would be liable in that case but in the case where you're not touching the person so they could they could go away right they could just be be brave and and uh, stop themselves from uh from uh from becoming deaf and re- remaining in that situation right but this person is just too scared that they they uh, uh, are stunned and they can't get away and that's what causes them to go deaf is their own frightfulness um so if a, if a person um, is damaged because they're so such a scaredy cat, so frightful, so weak. Then it's not the fault of the person who scares them. And so too, in the case of the uh, the slave, um, if he if he hits him just near his eye or near his ear, that's not an act that um, should cause anything at all. Um, therefore, we cannot prove from here that we have to make an evaluation um, uh, for nizakin. No, even if you if you do something small. A small amount, um, even if it's a feather or whatever, you would still have to pay damages. But but uh, the reason why he doesn't go free in this case is because um, it's the it's the fear of the slave that caused he caused his own damage. So surely, if I do something 
that ends up, you know, ma making you, uh, you know, fall over because you're you're afraid. But that's your own fault, and I don't have to pay for that. That's what this case is talking about. Um, but otherwise, if I do something directly to you, even if it's with a small instrument that would shouldn't wouldn't we wouldn't expect to cause a lot of damage, I would still have to pay. Okay, so that's no proof. Third proof. Uh, there are the five things that a person has to pay if he causes damage to another person. We evaluate them and you have to pay them immediately, right? All five the damages, pain, embarrassment, and also for medical bills and loss of livelihood. For those two, one has to pay um, and continue uh, paying the amount that would be required until the person gets better. In other words, we're going to make an evaluation. Uh, you break somebody's arm. Well, how long does that usually take? Uh, the medical uh, treatment is going to be a cast. You have to wear it for two months. And so that means you're going to be out of work for two months. So we um, evaluate how long that would be until uh, normally a person would get better from such a thing. And then that evaluation is made right on the spot and one has to pay it immediately. Okay, so that's the beginning of this Teachers, you have to pay all five immediately. If they evaluate that you're going to have to pay $10,000, that will be the medical cost and loss of livelihood as we estimate for a broken arm. But then it turns out that this person, the victim, progressively deteriorates and he's not getting better and there's some complications and there's a problem. The perpetrator does not have to pay more because we made the evaluation and this is a normal amount that one would have to pay for such an evaluation so he doesn't have to pay more and on the flip side also if you may make an estimation that this ten thousand dollars for breaking an arm and the victim he gets better after one month he just uh, miraculous uh, he's very very healthy and his bones just go back and he's back in work and he still gets the full amount uh, that we evaluated um, that's what the Benaita says you pay everything and it's evaluated immediately you have to pay immediately and whatever we evaluate is the for all five including for medical cost and for loss of livelihood whether it ends up taking him longer or shorter he still pays the same amount. What can we learn from this Badaita? Shema Mina Yesh Omed Linzakin. See, we make an evaluation. We evaluate the person and see how long do we think he's going to take for him to get better. Um, so we respond to this. So no, this Badaita is talking about evaluating a person, how long he will suffer from the injury and how long he will not suffer, suffer, how long will it take him to get better. This is not a question. For sure, you have to make an evaluation for each person. It's not one set amount that all broken arms are the same. It depends how bad is the break, what kind of person, what does he do and all that. Um, so yes, that is an evaluation that depends on each and every person. Everybody agrees. There's no that was not original question. Our question was regarding the item that's used as a weapon to cause the injury. 
that do we make an evaluation and say listen this weapon is likely to cause a bone to break and you have to pay or it's if it's not likely to cause a bone to break then you don't have to pay um do we evaluate or do we say listen if you cause this person this bone to break no matter what type of uh, rock big rock small rock doesn't matter we go by the consequences that was our question the evaluation in this case has nothing to do with evaluation of the tool uh of the weapon used so that is no proof from here. So fourth proof. So this proof is valid according to the opinion of Shimon Timni, who that we saw yesterday. And when the Torah says, um, if someone hits someone else with a fist or a rock, why does it give, give, give the example of a fist? Well, a fist is something that we can evaluate uh, because the perpetrator is here. He has to be in court um, in order to be judged. And therefore, this is something that is available to both the Aida, the assembly, meaning the judges and the witnesses too. They can come and look at this fist, right? Let me come make a fist. Let's see how strong you are. Is it likely that this fist would cause this extent of damage? If yes, you have to pay. If not, then you don't have to pay. So too, um, anything that is unique in that it is available to both the judges and the witnesses, then, oh, and only then, will the perpetrator uh, pay or not pay, depending on the evaluation of that weapon. So we learn from here that, yes, there is an evaluation, at least according to Shimon Timni, we do evaluate not only cases of murder, but also also in the cases of injury. Going back to a statement that we saw in the previous Padaita, that they estimate that this person... Um, the time that it will take for him to heal and get better is uh, two months, and so they make an evaluation that you're going to have to pay $10,000, but let's say he got, he got better more quickly um, in, in only one month. Nevertheless, you still have to pay the higher amount. This uh, baraita supports a halacha that Rava taught, where he said if a person uh, was injured, and the, we evaluate him that he's going to be out of work all day. You cause this person to miss a whole day of work, and let's say in a whole day he makes two hundred dollars. Okay, so you're going to have to pay him two hundred dollars. Now, um, turns out, you know what? He felt better by by noon. He already felt better, and he was back at work, and he's 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 uh, he's there. Nevertheless, the perpetrator has to uh, pay him for the entire day of work because that's what the, we evaluated. And from heaven, heaven had mercy on him and helped him to get better quickly. So that's his benefit. And so he gets paid for all $200 for losing an entire day of work, even though he goes to work half the day and still makes another $100. Okay, the Mishnah taught, Rakak boharok um, if uh, someone spits upon someone else and the spit reaches him um, and uh, other examples uh, taking off someone's clothing you have to pay 400 dinar but this is only if the re- spit reaches him if someone spits towards someone else and it lands on the floor although that is also embarrassing 
but that is not the same level as it actually the spit actually touching the person and so only in that case we have to pay 400 dinar papa says when it's when we're talking about that one spits upon someone else you have to pay the 400 that's only if it lands on the person himself on his skin somewhere on his skin the spit lands that's very very embarrassing then it's 400 but if it only lands on his clothing and doesn't touch his skin then he does not have to pay him at least not that amount uh why not um because it's like humiliating someone with words you call someone names although that's also not nice to do and that's uh, other problems but you can't um evaluate damages just for calling someone a name and so too spitting towards someone and it only lands on their clothing although it's also not a nice thing to do it's not nearly as embarrassing and shameful as touching his skin so only if it touches his skin do you pay the 400. In the West they learned from uh, they say in the name of that we can learn from this Mishnah that if you uh, humiliate someone with words, although it's not nice, it's still, you know, Lashon Hara and other, other things, but you don't have to pay any amount for that. You can't call that uh, physical damages that you can calculate a payment for. Now the Mishnah said, it gave a, a list of numbers, right? The 400 zoos for um, uh, uh, spitting or taking off someone's clothing. And then it said that there's a rule. It all goes by a person's honor. It's a sliding scale depending on if they're an aristocrat or a low-class person. disagreed. He said one set, one set price for all Jews because everybody's considered like an aristocrat. But Tanakama said it's a sliding scale. So according to Tanakama, when the Mishnah says 400 Jews, is that a leniency or a stringency? Is it a leniency uh, to say, it's a, uh, Mishnah is saying 400, that's the standard highest amount for an aristocrat. But if there's a poor person who is not so embarrassed uh, by being spat upon, then he would only get 200 or 100 or 50. So the, so the 400 is the max, but it really could be less. Or is the 400 a minimum? The 400 is for the poor person. But if it's a rich aristocrat who gets very, very uh, upset and shamed by being spat upon, maybe you have to pay more than four, maybe 500, maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000. Um, and so we're saying that, and so when he says, uh, it's all according to the person's honor, that is actually saying that sometimes you could pay more. And this statement is meant as a stringency. Okay, good, important question. Uh, we can figure it out from the um, uh, uh, statement of Rabbi Akiva, the response of Rabbi Akiva. He said, even the poorest of the poor of Israel, we consider that we consider them as if they are aristocrats. That just happened to fall upon hard times, but they're still, you know, they're still high class and still feel shame, even though right now they may have lost their money. Why do we consider all Jews to be aristocrats? Because they're children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Look at this great lineage that they have. So who cares if they have more money or less money? That doesn't evaluate their essential worth and their 
feeling of shame and embarrassment. Okay, so we see that Rabbi Akiva, his argument is you should treat everybody in a higher higher amount. So surely Rabbi Akiva is being machmir and saying you have to pay everybody the, the most, the highest amount. So we can infer from that that Tanakhama, when he said this is the rule, he's disagreeing with Rabbi Akiva and he's saying um, the rule is that, oh, this is the highest amount, 400 zoos, that's for someone who is an aristocrat. But if it's a, sli- it's a sliding scale, it's sort of according to what's on if someone is uh, from low class and they're not so embarrassed, then you pay less than 400. But this is a good proof, so it's important to read uh, the statements of the Mishnah in context, and you see from the conversation what what, what each of them means. Now we have we had a story in the Mishnah about uh, someone who disheveled, uh, uncovered a woman's hair, and they went to the Bekiva, and he said that you uh, you have to pay 400 zoos. And then the assailant said, I-, I need some time. He needs some time to uh, to do a ruse to make her uncover her own hair to lap up a little bit of oil. So we ask a question about the story. What do you mean, give him time? The guy says, I, I, I don't want to pay right now. I want, I want time to, to, uh, to uh, I need more time to pay or I need time to, uh, you know, to make, uh, make an argument. Um, that uh, she doesn't deserve this. Who, wh- why do we give them time? Rabbi Chania said that you don't provide time for injuries. If someone injures someone else, they have to pay right away. So why was he allowed to have time? The answer is, when it says that we don't give anyone extra time to, to pay, in the cases of injury, that's only injury that there's a loss of money. If you inflict physical damage on a person, and so now he is, uh, he, he feels the pain right away, and his his loss is he lost his arm or whatever uh, right away. So since there's a monetary as a monetary loss. You have to fill that in immediately. But for humiliation, you didn't cause a monetary loss. Uh, there is, you have to compensate the person for humiliation, but it's not a monetary loss, and therefore, um, is not there. One is not required to pay immediately. You can pay eventually. Uh, now, remember this guy, the uh, assailant, he went and c- created this whole sting operation and had two uh, witnesses hiding behind a bush watching as he broke a jug. And, uh, and then she uh, uh, mopped up the, uh, the little bit of oil and uh, uncovered her own head. Uh, so in the Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva said that uh, although she uh, caused injury to herself, which is not permitted, um, so Rabbi uh, Akiba said, one's not allowed to cause injury to himself and, or cause embarrassment to himself. Nevertheless, you caused her embarrassment, you have to pay. That was the language in the Mishnah. But in the Braita version, Rabbi Akiba says that a person is allowed to cause injury to himself, right? The exact statement of Rabbi Akiva is um, uh, to this assailant, you went into deep waters. In other words, you did a lot of investig- investigatory reporting and you set up a sting operation and you found this thing and you saw that she uncovered her own hair, but you all you have is uh, worthless earthenware in your hand. There's a, probably a double a play on words. Cheres, um, is a general statement that means something worthless. In this case, the guy happened to actually break a jug. And so all he has is physically in his hand uh, just a broken jug. So he says, in other words, your argument is worthless because a person is allowed to injure himself, 
But if you injure him, then you have to pay. And so to here, she's allowed to embarrass herself, but you injure, you embarrass her, you have to pay. So the question is, how come in the Mishnah, Rabbi Akiba said one is not allowed to injure himself? And in this Braita, he says a person is allowed to injure himself. Rabbi says, no, it's different. If it's physical injury, that's what it meant in the Mishnah. You're not allowed to bash yourself on the head, gash yourself. You can't cause yourself physical injury. But humiliation, if you feel like be making yourself humiliated, that's permitted. Wait a second, but our Mishnah is talking about humiliation. And that's in our Mishnah that Rabbi Akiva said, Rabbi Akiva said, you're not allowed. So it, it, you can't say that for embarrassment it's allowed because our Mishnah is talking about embarrassment and that's what Rabbi Akiva says, it's not allowed. Now we have to reread the Mishnah um, in order to fit it in with Rava's answer. When you reread it as follows, right, not Rabbi Akiva is telling him, not only uh, regarding embarrassment, where a person is allowed to embarrass himself. Um, and so if, if you cause embarrassment to that person, you have to pay. Not only that, but even for injury, where a person is not allowed to injure himself, nevertheless, uh, if, uh, if he does, he doesn't have to pay himself, but if someone else injures him, you do have to pay. So therefore, um, that's what Rebbe Akiva's argument was, even though she is willing to cause embarrassment to herself, but that doesn't make a difference to you. You're still not allowed to cause her embarrassment. And um, the same would be true if she in, if she feels like injuring herself and she's hitting herself on the head and you go and hit her again, you still have to pay, even though she is not allowed to do that. Um, nevertheless, the fact that you did it and you added, you have to pay as well. Um, you do have to pay. And now we have a general question about injuring oneself. This is very important. Right, are you, or is that true that you're not allowed to injure yourself? Regarding vows, right? The Pasuk says, If someone makes a vow to either not do something or do something, to do something negative, that would be against himself, or do something positive, that would be a good thing. Either way, if you make a vow, you have to fulfill it, and if you don't fulfill it, you're liable. So this Padaita asks, can it be, would, would you, can we, uh, should we think that if someone makes a vow against oneself, that to cause oneself some, something bad, and he didn't do it, that he should be not liable? No, that's why the, the Pasuk says, lehara o lehetiv, to do something bad or to do something good. Just like regarding doing something good, it has to be something optional. In other words, if you make a vow to do a mitzvah that you have to do anyway, then that's, uh, that's, uh, you have to do mitzvah no matter what. So the, the, the vow does not apply to such a case. Only when one makes a vow to do something that is optional that you don't have to do, then you have to make sure to fulfill it. The vow applies. So just like regarding Hatabah Sabida Shut, so too for something negative it has to be something optional. Um, so I should um therefore I will bring in, I will include someone who makes a vow uh, to do something negative, and he didn't do something negative, um, that he is liable. What do we see from here? That saying I'm gonna do something if I promise I'm gonna hit myself over the head three times. 
Um, so then do I have to do it? According to this Braita, you do have to because that's called something optional. In other words, uh, Braita is assuming that it, one is permitted to cause himself damage and therefore if you make a vow that you're going to make cause yourself damage you have to go through with it so is it true that you can't cause yourself damage from here we see that one is permitted Shemuel says no we're not talking about a case where someone vows to hit himself over the head if you vow to hit yourself over the head do not fulfill that vow that's an invalid vow you're not allowed to do that you can't make a vow to do something that's not permitted Rather, we're talking about someone who makes a vow that will be to his detriment, but not in a way that's prohibited. For example, if he says, I am going to fast, right? I'm going to fast for the next, uh, tomorrow, for the next two days. So it's causing him suffering, um, but it's permitted. Uh, if you want to fast, uh, you're allowed to uh, to make a vow that one will fast. That's what the Mishnah is talking about, but an actual physical injury, you're not allowed to cause yourself. Now the question is, from earlier in the same Braita, uh, mentioned that if I make a vow to cause damage to, to someone else, that vow is not not valid, right? Even though I, I, I promised I'm, I was, I'm going to punch you, so you have to let me punch you because, uh, you know, I promised. No, we don't say that. So if, Shemuel, you say that this part, the second part of the Braita is talking about a person who makes a vow upon himself, that he's just going to fast, can we, we have to apply that the same also in the first half of the Braita. So would that make any sense that you can make a vow to about someone else that that person has to fast? Is it in, in uh, someone's power to compel someone else not to eat, right? How are you going to do that? And the answer is, Yes, you can lock someone in a room. Uh, I take some, I take you, I lock you in a room without food for a whole day. And that's how I can, I can vow that I will make you fast and I can, I can do that. So yes, it is possible to have such a case. Hold on, there's a Braita that says, what does it mean doing uh, bad to someone else in the context of a vow? If, if, if it, and it gives an example, I will hit someone on his head and cause him brain injury. So clearly it's talking about an actual physical injury, not just forcing someone to fast rather must be there's a machloket between various tanaim and there is a tana that says um, that a person is not allowed to injure himself and there's also a tana that says a person is permitted to injure himself so who says you cannot injure oneself? This Braita here assumes that you can injure oneself. So where is the Braita that says you're not allowed to injure oneself? Maybe it's this Braita quoting a Pasuk in the beginning of Bereshit told to Noah that I um the, the your, that surely your the blood of your souls I will require. And as I learned from that that from you I will uh I will uh Doresh require I will seek after your blood, meaning if someone takes his own life, kills himself, then he is liable. Suicide is not allowed. So is this the the source? Of the person that says you cannot damage yourself, because here you see you can you cannot kill yourself, but that's not a good source. For maybe killing is different. One is not permitted permitted to take his own life. That's very extreme. Suicide is not allowed. But maybe in just injuring oneself is permitted. You just want to 
um, cause yourself a cut or, or uh, bang yourself on the, uh, break your own arm. So maybe that would be allowed. There's no proof from here. Rather, it's from the following Braita. Someone who tears his clothing because of a dead person uh, uh, over uh, in mourning over a close one that died. This is permitted, and it's not called a an Amorite custom. This is a Jewish custom. In fact, it's required. One has to tear one's clothing as a reflection of one's uh, deep mourning. And even if non-Jews also do it, and they cut they they, they cut themselves, they cause themselves uh, bad. Uh, nevertheless, it doesn't make it not allowed, right? This is a this is permitted. And Abiel Azad added, I heard a tradition that someone who cuts his garments too much over uh, in mourning, that's a problem about Baltashrit. Yes, you you have to uh, tear your clothing, right? You tear a garment, you can tear two garments, but if you're going to go tear up your whole wardrobe because you're so upset about the person that died, that is uh, causing destruction, and you're not allowed to cause wanton destruction. Now, if you're not allowed even to cause damage to your clothing, all the more so, you cannot cause damage to your body. That's the source of that. This is the Tana that thinks one is not allowed to mutilate oneself. Oh, but maybe this is not a proof. Maybe clothing is different from uh, one's own body because clothing is a loss that's irreversible. Whereas a body, if you cut your body, you get better, right? You may get a cut in your body. Magically, your body heals. But clothing, if you cut clothing and you leave it, it doesn't get, doesn't get better um, by itself. And so maybe clothing, cutting clothing is actually worse. And we see there's a couple of examples of such a thing. Rabbi Yochanan would call his garments my honor, right? He honored, he feels honored by his garments. So you see how he, how much he respected his garments. And Verav Chistaki hava mesgeh bene hizmeh vihigeh. When he was walking among thorns and shrubs, he would raise his clothing, he would pick up his robe so that his legs would get all scratched with the thorns, but that his clothing wouldn't rip. Which seems strange. Wouldn't you want to put your robe down specifically to protect your legs? When you're going through thorns, and he said the opposite. If I scratch up and uh, cut my legs, uh, they'll heal. But the garment, if it gets torn, it will not heal. So you see, he was more careful with his garments than he was with his skin. So therefore, there's no proof from here. Maybe, yes, you're not allowed, because of Baal Tashrit, to cut up your clothing, but maybe you are allowed to cut up your skin. So this is the Tana that thinks that you're not allowed to mutilate or cause harm to oneself. The Beraita says, um, that Rabbi Al-Azhar Nasi. Why does it say regarding a Nazir that he has to bring a Korban Hatat, right? Because he had to atone for sinning, uh, for sinning against himself. What sin did he do, right? All he did was he afflicted himself by abstaining from wine. He said, I'm not going to have wine for 30 days or however long he's going to be a Nazir. So we can learn a Kavach If a person 
only causes himself relatively small amount of affliction by refraining from wine for a short time. And he, that person is called a sinner for uh, refraining from drinking wine. Then someone who causes himself actual harm by harming himself, hitting himself, cutting himself, then that certainly all the more so is called a sinner. And so we found our uh, Tana who thinks that causing oneself harm is prohibited. Someone who cuts down trees, um, one's not allowed to do so, but you don't have to pay, right? Because you own the trees. But if someone else cuts down your trees, then you are liable. So now we're going to go into the laws of cutting down trees. Uh, we have a baraita. Um, uh, that it'd be Rabbah, Babar Hana taught. Um, if one person co- comes and makes a sue someone else and says, You killed my ox, you cut down my saplings. And the other person says, Yes, true, I did. But you told me to. You said, Go and kill my ox. You asked me to uh, cut down these saplings, but you didn't want these saplings there. You didn't want your ox. You asked me to. So if that if that's the counterclaim, he's not liable because uh, yeah we believe him and he did it uh, based on the instruction of the owner. Um, however, Ahmad le imken lo shabakt haye le libriyata. Rabbah Baruch said this brayta in front of Rav, and Rav responded and says, if that's true, it doesn't make any sense because no one can live like this. Kol kimine is it in his power to to uh, to assert such a thing? then yes, you can get out of any damage where you can go and just, you know, burn someone's house down. And if they come and say, oh, you know, you have to pay me, you burn my house down, you could always answer, oh, you told me to. So everybody can get out of payment for any injury based on this. So therefore, this is not a practical ruling. So the Baba Rechana says, well, what should I do with this Braita? I, I didn't make I didn't make up this law. I'm teaching a Braita, a tradition that I heard. So should I erase it, right? Should I say this is not an invalid Braita? And not repeat it anymore. No, we don't want to erase an oral tradition. It's based on something. Rather, let's interpret it in a way that will make it make sense. Now, we're assuming it's talking about an ox that is about to be killed or a tree that's about to be cut down. Uh, maybe it's an Avo, it was worshipped as Avo Dazara and has to be cut down or killed. Or maybe it's a dangerous tree that's about to fall in on the, in the, in the, in the public uh, thoroughfare. And so since it's about to be cut down anyway, in that case, if someone cuts it down and I come and say, why'd you cut down my tree? He says, oh, you told me to. Then will we, believe, we will believe the person. It makes sense that I would ask someone to cut it down if it's something that it needs to be cut down anyway. Now, if that's the case, that's about to be cut down, then what is my claim? What am I suing you for? If it has to be cut down anyway, you're doing me a favor. Um, so what, what would I be suing you for uh, in the first place? Here's a chidush that I'm suing you because I say I wanted to cut it down. I have a tree that's uh, sloping dangerously into the public thoroughfare. So it's a misvah to remove a dangerous thing from the from the public. So I went inside to get my saw so I can go cut it down and do this mitzvah. In the meantime, you preempt and you cut it down and you get the mitzvah. So I come with a claim against you and I say, oh, how dare you take away my mitzvah? I'm suing you for 
uh, taking away my misvah. That's the case. And then you can answer, say, well, no, you asked me to. In that case, we believe you. And you don't have to pay me for taking away my misvah. And how do you know that taking away misvah is, uh, is uh, one is liable for, for monetary damages for such a thing? Um, since uh, someone who slaughters a chaya or a bird has to cover up the blood. Halacha um, till today, you kill a chicken, you have to cover up the blood. That's a mitzvah. And in fact, there was a case of someone that did shechita, and then after shechita, he's about to do the mitzvah of covering the blood. You even say a beracha on this mitzvah. But in the meantime, someone else came right away, preempted, and covered up the blood. And then the one who did the shechita brought him to court and said, I wanted to do the mitzvah. He stole my mitzvah. And Aban Gamliel said, you have to pay 10 golden coins to him because you stole his opportunity to do a mitzvah. We next analyze the laws of cutting down fruit trees, which we learn the prohibition um, from here. When you go into siege um, against a city, um, uh, one, you're, you're permitted to go, you know, go, enter into a siege to go against an enemy, uh, but you cannot cut down the trees um, uh, because they you have to eat from the trees. They're necessary for human civilization. This tree, what did it do that uh, you're involving it in the war? Uh, but there's an exception. If there's a tree that you know that it's not a, a fruit tree, then you can cut it down and you can use it to build your siege work. Um, uh, but a fruit tree is not allowed. Okay, so that's what the Torah says, but we're going to see that there are some exceptions to this rule. If you have a date palm that produces dates in the Mount of Akav, then you're not allowed to cut it down because that's a fruit tree. But, but if it's already old and not producing so much, um, it's only producing a little bit of dates, then you're allowed to cut it down, right? There's a, it's not, you know, one date doesn't make it a fruit tree. Uh, we have a challenge. We have, because uh, uh, another Mishnah teaches how much uh, does an olive tree have to produce that you can't cut it down. It's only a quarter of a kav. And here you said a full kav. And the answer is no. Olives are different because they're very significant. They're very valuable. So for different trees, you have to look at the value. Uh, for dates, a whole kav. For olives, a quarter of a kav. That if it produces a lot, then you cannot cut it down. But if it produces less than that, then already uh, it's not so valuable as uh, in producing fruit. You can use the the the, uh, wood, the wood. The wood is more valuable, and you're allowed to cut it down. And here we see the severity of cutting down a fruit tree. Rabbi Chanina says that his son named Shibhat died early because he cut down a fig tree early before its time. Uh, it was still producing lots of figs, and he was not allowed to cut it down. If the lumber of the tree is greater in monetary value than the fruit, then you're allowed to chop it down. I mean, in the way that the wood of the tree is the, is the fruit that's worth more than the fruit itself, 
and then that's permitted. We're going to prove that this is so, that you can cut down if the wood, if the lumber is more valuable, you're allowed to cut it down. We're going to prove from this Baraita. It says, Noticing that there's a double language here. Um, uh, only a tree that you know that it is not a tree um, uh, that uh, that one that produces food. You could have skipped this etz asher teda. You could have skipped that whole uh, phrase. So why does it teach it? Um, as follows. This is referring to a fruit tree that there are cases when you're allowed to cut it down. There's no other trees around and you need to make a, you know, build a, a siege or whatever. Um, then uh, there are cases where it's permitted. And then the second part, that it's not a fruit tree at all, this is talking about barren trees. So now we ask, if we're going to end up including that says that, uh, and say that there are cases where you can cut down any tree, so why bother with the second phrase that this is a, a barren tree, right? If even a fruit tree can cut down in some situations, then all the more so a barren tree. So why teach anything about the barren tree? Uh, for precedence, if you have a choice, then you have to take the barren tree first and cut that and use that to cut down. And then if you still need a two and there's no other barren trees around, only then can you cut down the fruit tree if an emergency and you need it to win the war. Now, should I, would I think that you're even not allowed to cut down a fruit tree if the lumber is worth more than the fruit? That's why it says the word rak as an exception to the rule that even if it's a fruit-bearing tree, but the lumber is worth more, you're allowed to cut it down. And that's a proof for the halacha that we just learned before. Shemuel has a couple of stories. Shemuel um, had a sharecropper, and the sharecropper brought him some dates from the field. And he ate the dates, and he tasted that tasted like the dates tasted like wine. And he says, "What's going on here?" And the sharecropper explained that the dates are growing right in, uh, in the middle of the vines. And so there, the, some of the taste of the grapes is going into the dates. Um, so Shemuel realized that the dates are removing the are, are weakening the vines. If they're taking so much of the flavor of the of the grapes, that means the grapes are not going to be as tasty. And this is a problem. The grapes are worth more than the dates. So he says, tomorrow I want you to br- I want you to bring me the marrow. Of the date, meaning the date, uh, the, um, uh, the the uh, of the date palm. The, we're talking about the heart of palm, right? The hearts of palm. You have to actually cut down those branches in order to eat the hearts of palm. So, in other words, he's saying, you know, I want you to cut down the date palm because it's it's uh, damaging the uh, the wine. So you see here another example where. Um, it's permitted to cut down a fruit tree in order to have more benefit from the more valuable, um, the other fruit tree that's more valuable. Similarly, Rav Chista saw that day palms were growing among the grapevines, and so the day palms are going to take some of the nourishment and weaken the grapevines. So he told his sharecropper, I want you to go and uproot the day palms 
Um, why? Because you can always purchase date palms with grapevines because grapevines are more valuable. But you cannot purchase grapevines with date palms and therefore you go buy the thing that's more valuable. So therefore, just like before, we saw that if the lumber is more valuable, then you can cut it down. Uh, so too, if it's between two different fruits, then you can cut down the one that is less valuable. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve'amen.